Our speaker in this session is Richard Sutton. I have known Richard a long time and uh, have uh, had an opportunity to, to be involved in his work in uh, Meridian, Idaho uh, directly sometimes and more indirectly in observing and watching from uh, afar. But uh, I have looked at his work and his life and uh, with admiration. Richard is one that uh, he started out his uh, adult life in a secular field. And um, uh, according to the bio, and he needs to explain this, I have no idea, but it says a non-destructive quality assurance inspector. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds violent, but uh, no, non-destructive. I guess it wouldn't be, would it? But, but um, he went to Preston Road in 1979, graduated from there in 81, and uh, has been preaching ever since. So if you do the math, uh, you can see that he's got a 40-plus uh, year tenure in ministry and has been at the Linda Road uh, Congregation in Meridian, Idaho, and now for 20 years. He also is serving as one of the seven uh, elders that are at that congregation. If you ever vacation in Idaho or you uh, want to find a good church to go visit, uh, you got to go to Linda Road. You got to go to Meridian and uh, go to that congregation. Um, that's not the only place that Richard has worked. He's had um, uh, ministries in California and Caldwell, Idaho and Loveland, Colorado. And um, one of the things that um, is dear to my heart, uh, Bear Valley Bible Institute has uh, 58 international preacher training schools. I'll just let that soak in for a minute. Uh, this school, Denver, Colorado, 58, and we'll talk some more about that after my lecture at 3 o'clock this afternoon, so uh, be sure that you are there for that. Um, but I say that because one of the places that we have been involved is in uh, West Africa, in Ghana and in Cameroon. And Ghana had, and, and Cameroon have won Richard's heart. Uh, he has done seminars there uh, over uh, a decade of trips. Richard, is that um, about right? Since 86. Since 86. So uh, more, more than that. Um, developing preachers, which again is, uh, you're singing my song right there. And um, so I love Richard for that. Love him for the good work that he does. Um, for the solid church that he is a minister for uh, there in Idaho. And um, he is um, just a good man, a good friend, and someone that uh, uh, I love very much. And so we'll turn it over to Brother Richard. Come preach the word. Thank you, Denny. Non-destructive testing was on nuclear reactors, and I just did radiography and dipenetrate and ultrasonics and welded in all positions, and so it was just making sure those things were built right and stayed running, and so that's all that really was. I do love going to Africa. I've made, I think, something like 30 different trips to Africa, and so they are dear to my heart, and those brethren over there love the Word of God so much. I appreciate so much, you know, Bear Valley invited me to come here. I'm so humbled because of the caliber of men that are, are preaching here at this lectureship. I mean, they're just incredible men, and you know, I just really are in their shadows in so many ways, but they have done such a a great job so far, and I was really excited when they saw the uh, the theme of the lectureship that had to do with you know clinging to hope and trust in difficult times. We live in a time where life really is difficult for people and. 
And if you listen to any of Brett's lesson or, or last night as uh, the lessons were being taught there, they shared with you a number of things that have made life very difficult from the political landscape to uh, the world landscape, you know, with a war in Russia and Vladimir Putin saying that if things don't go his way, he's going to go nuclear. And, and then we have, you know, a, a, the moral climate that is almost upside down, absolutely rejecting the Judeo-Christian values and uh, taking that which is a sexual perversion and making it almost a normal kind kind of, of thing. We have the economic pressures of trying to stretch a dollar more than we've ever had to do in, you know, in the last 40 years. Uh, people are really troubled. For instance, how many, what do you think is the leading cause of death in America today? I'll give you a hint. It's not heart attacks. It's not people that have cancer. The leading cause is people are taking their lives. Suicide. 2020, 49,979 people ended their lives. That's tragic. That means there was one every 11 minutes were killing themselves because they had no hope. What's even more scary is that 1,200,000 attempted to kill themselves. And even more scary than that, 12 million thought about doing so. And if you think that's something that's only in the world around you, it's also in the church today where people have absolutely lost hope. You know, in the ministry worldwide, I was or nationwide, I was looking at an article, and in the article it says that 42% of ministers are leaving the ministry. Some say it's because of politics. Others say it's because of the pandemic. But trying to navigate through all the different kinds of downturns in life, it just causes me to say, I'm done with this. And if you think it's just denominational preachers, I hear of preachers all over our brotherhood who are saying they've had enough. They're just walking away from it. It's because I think there's a loss of hope that is there. So when you had a lectureship that talks about hope and increasing hope, Denny said, there's never a more timely day than today to talk about what hope is about. And so as I thought about dealing with distressful moments, they gave me the topic of Gethsemane. And I thought about Jesus and how he addressed the moments that were so difficult in his life. And as I thought about that, I thought about 2004. In 2004, there was an epic film that was made. It was produced and directed by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. That year, it was the fifth highest grossing show in Hollywood. It received or was at least nominated for three Academy Awards. It was a show that overviewed the last 12 hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. It was a, an incredible uh, movie, and part of that movie was the Garden of Gethsemane. I remember that movie because I decided to go to that movie, and I remember that as I bought tickets for the movie, I was in dread of doing it. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't want to go to the movie. I mean, I just didn't want to, but I went because I was a preacher, and I figured my congregation would be going to that, that movie, and I needed to have some answers for them, maybe to answer some questions that they had about the, the movie. So I went to the movie. I remember arriving at the theater, and, and the box offices were closed, and there were hundreds, I mean hundreds of people who were waiting in anticipation of seeing that movie. Couples were there on their Friday night dates. I don't know if they knew what they're in for. <laughs> Church groups were there in anticipation. They had heard about the reviews of the movie, and so they were there, the box offices were closed, then the box offices opened, and they lined up quickly and bought their tickets. They walked inside the lobby. Many of them, lines went into the concessions. They were buying bags of popcorn and, and soft drinks and, and candy and all the refreshments that were there. And as I walked by, after Lori and I bought the tickets, we walked by the concession. I saw the lines, and I thought, what are these people thinking they're going to do? They, they bought popcorn and Cokes for every movie they had ever been to except this movie. 
And as we walked in and we took our seat, I saw that the crowd in the theater, they were abuzz. There was this electricity that was there. People were standing and they were talking and they were visiting and they were laughing. And you could hear the rattle of hands going inside popcorn bags to get a, a morsel and they were drinking their Cokes. And, and I took my seat and my attitude was almost in stark contrast because as I sat in my seat, I mean, there was just dread that came over me. It was almost a, a cold sweat because you see, I knew the storyline. Mm-hmm. I read all four of the Gospels, and I knew that the Calvary was not going to come over to Calvary and save Jesus. I knew that he was going to die. And I knew he was going to die in excruciating death. I didn't know how bad Mel Gibson was going to portray, but I knew it was going to be bad. And, and I internalized it, and as I sat there, I thought to myself, Jesus is going to die, and he's going to die because of me. And that broke my heart. It grieved me to know that he would go through that. And then the movie started. And as the movie started, the people began to, to settle down. And we were treated to some t- very tender moments of Jesus' life as he was growing up and as he was becoming more aged and mature. And, and, and then he went into, the, uh, they went into a scene where he is in the carpenter shop. And Jesus is talking with his mother. And they are bantering back and forth with one another. And they were joking with one another. And you saw this human soft side of Jesus that you sometimes don't think about. And then the movie, it began to turn to a dark side and we were ushered into the Garden of Gethsemane for moments. And then from the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas would show up on scene and he would uh, he would betray Jesus with a kiss, and then Jesus would be arrested, and then the trials would start, and he'd be before the, the chief priests, and then before Pontius Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pontius Pilate. And in the midst of that, he would go to the pavement, and in the intermediate death, he would beaten, be beaten within an inch of his, of his life. By that time, the audience is being transformed. It's starting to change. People are starting to wince. People are starting to groan as they this, these men are beating Jesus. Some say that Mel Gibson went way overboard in beating Jesus that way. But I think that a man that is of any kind of size, if a man of my size, and when I was a younger man was strong and, and knew how to wield a, a, a flagellate, I can see how he could strip a man of his skin. And if he did it as an experienced man, he could strip him of his skin to the point that he was right at the point of death, but strong enough to still go to the cross. And then there was the crucifixion as he's led to Golgotha. And, and as they took our Lord and as they stretched out his arm till he pulled him out of his sockets and nailed his hands to the cross. And he was wincing and he was groaning and crying. And then they did his other hand and then they... And then they nailed his feet to the cross. And by that time, let me tell you, the audience was transformed. No one was talking. You couldn't hear the rattle of people reaching into their popcorn bags to get a morsel. There was this eerie silence that was there except for several things. The things that were there was people were weeping. You could hear it. Some cried out loud. And then the movie ended. And when the movie ended, Everyone got up in silence, and we walked out of that room, and no one was talking to each other. No one was even making a comment. I mean, they walked out of there. They weren't even looking at each other. They're looking at the floor as they walked out, and as they went to the trash receptacles, they were putting bags of popcorn that were only maybe a third eaten and soft drinks that had not been drank, and they were throwing them into overflowing trash receptacles. They had been transformed. 
They've been broken by what Jesus had done. They had spent four, two hours watching this on two mounts, the Mount of Olives and the, and the Mount Calvary. And there at that mountain were the two most momentous moments of emotional and physical and spiritual battles were taking place in the life of Jesus. It was an incredible moment. As Christians, you know, we read articles, we've heard sermons and and lessons on the cross of Jesus where we went into detail and we knew a lot about it, but seldom do we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane and what took place there when Jesus' life was absolutely tested in terms of his resolve. Would he be able to, to take on the sins of the world? Would he able to be able to face the being alienated from God and, and to go through those things for us? You know, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, sometimes we sing this song, "'Tis Midnight and on Olive's Brow." It's a song that, in a very succinct kind of way, depicts what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane in a very kind of real kind of, of, of way. It's recorded in all four of, or, or three of the four Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, the 26th chapter, Mark, the 14th chapter, Luke, the 22nd chapter. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. In this section of Scripture, beginning in verse 32, you have the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what we're going to, I'm going to be using as my text. I'll be referring to the other two, but listen to what it says. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed, If it is possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And he came, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed the same, saying the same words. And, and again, he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to say. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The Garden of Gethsemane, or the garden itself, is such a, a unique place when you think about it. The amazing scene there shows really the humanity of Jesus and his resolve to go through what was before him. When you talk about the last days of Jesus, he oftentimes would pass between Bethany, where he is staying, and then to Jerusalem. And in between was the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would stop there, oftentimes to rest or to maybe just to relax. Understand that when he went to Jerusalem, he wasn't just going there in a sightseeing. He was there involved in, you know, the temple discourses as he was at war with the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the lawyers where they're trying to trip him up and trying to trap him or to make him look less before the crowd. And in every instance, he absolutely defeated them in every way. But it was draining for him. It was exhausting for him. And so on the way back, no doubt he probably stopped at the garden. 
That's why I think that probably Judas knew where to go to betray him because that's where they oftentimes frequented. But before the garden, there was the Passover. And at the Passover, John, the 13th chapter says, John said that he desired to partake of the Passover with him. And during the Passover... Uh, he said that he loved his own, and when he loved him, he loved him to the very end. And so as they entered into the pass- room for the Passover, they all came in and they all took their seats, you know. And, and then Jesus came in, and then he got up from the table because he would do what the rest would not do. And he, in a very tender and a very personal kind of moment, he washed each of their feet. And then he took the Passover with him, and during the Passover... He instituted the Lord's Supper. He took the bread and he broke and he says, this is my body. Eat of it. And then took the fruit of the vine in the same way. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it, all of you. He instituted the Lord's Supper. I doubt that the disciples really understood the gravity of that moment or the implications of what was going on there fully. But as he he did so, he did something else. He identified that there would be a betrayer among the twelve. And then he told them of his impending death. Now, he had told them of it numerous times, but this time it seemed to be different because he told them of his death. and, And Mark says that they were grieved that they're aggrieved deep down inside. And then it goes on to say in the narrative that afterwards, the supper, they sang a hymn, and then they left. And they began to head towards the garden, and as they went there, they would have to cross over the the Kidron Valley, which is to the east of the walls of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount itself. And they would cross over. Understand, this is in the dark of night. This is close to midnight. And so there are no street lights in those days. They are going to navigate across the Kidron, going down the Kidron which ironically means dark or or murky. And below is a stream that flows through there. And scholars say that oftentimes some of the blood that was sacrificed for the large masses of bulls and goats and sheep and goats, that blood sometimes would find its way down the Kidron and into the stream. And there it would mingle with the flow of the, the water there. The thing that struck me was the next day, Jesus would be hanging from the cross of Calvary and his blood would flow from his wounds for the sins of the world. And so at midnight, they arrive at Gethsemane. And as they arrive at Gethsemane, the place takes on a a, a scene. If you've ever been there, then you know that the garden still exists today. In fact, six of the olive trees that are there are still there. And they said that they were there 100 years before Jesus was there, and they're there 2,000 years later. They're all gnarly, and they're all twisted, but they are there. And the garden itself is absolutely a lovely place. It's quiet. It's serene, except for on that night. It would not be any of those things. Again, it's a dark place that is there. The word Gethsemane comes from a two-part Hebrew word, Gethsemane, maybe it's Shimoni, but and it means the olive press. And historians say that it's probably there at the Mount of Olives where they would gather all the olives at the harvest and they would bring them to the olive press and there they would extract all the oil from the olives themselves. When you talk about the olive press, there were a number of stages that took place to get all the oil out of the olive. 
in the scene behind me, you can see what the olive press looked like, at least one of them. They would gather the olives in the first stage, and, and they would take it to a hollowed-out round stone, and they would place those olives there. Then they'd put extremely heavy rock up on them, and then the lever, and at the end of the lever, they would place heavy rocks upon it to increase the pressure up on the olives, so they would become almost crushed to mush, and from there, the extract of the olive would take place. And then there was a second stage, and in the second stage, they would take that olive mush, and they would put it in round bags and they would place them underneath the rock once again and then they would apply even more pressure with even more rocks being placed upon the lever to extract even more of the olive oil and this olive oil was the most valuable the most sought after it was called virgin oil then there was a third stage and in the third stage they took that mushed up olives and they extracted the very last ounce of olive oil that they could possibly get from that and so what am I saying in the Garden of Gethsemane when we think of it, we think about a, an artist's rendition or a depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's much like the one that you see here where Jesus is in the garden and he was kneeling down and he's looking up into heaven and there is a light shining light or maybe a moon behind him casting his image so you can, can see him. But I don't think it was anything like that. I think the Gethsemane was a dark place where Jesus would experience a, a crushing time, a crushing struggle in his life. He would experience a, a crushing kind of weight because of the mission that was before him that would test his resolve, whether he is willing to go through all those things in order for mankind to be saved. And so like an olive press, here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't even think it's a coincidence. But there in his passion, in his moment, where his resolve is going to be tested, like an olive press, he is going to find the pressure all around him as the sins of the world are beginning to threaten who he is. We sing that song, Tis Midnight and on Olive's Brow. Look at the words, Tis Midnight, Tis Midnight and on Olive's Brow. The star is dim that lately shone. Tis Midnight in the Garden now. The suffering Savior prays along. In the garden, the Savior suffered. Never forget that. Mark and, and Matthew both said that as Jesus went into the garden, that he fell on his face. I thought to myself, why would you fall on your face? He said to them, to him, he says, I am greatly stressed. Mark went on to go further. It says that he was filled with horror or he was filled with dread. Matthew, as he talked about it, he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And, and then when and then when Luke talked about it, who was a doctor, he said of his agony of Jesus that he said he sweat as it were drops of blood. I'm talking about extreme pressure. Extreme pressure that was just breaking him down in, in every way that was possible as he was going through those moments with these things. It's like stones in the olive press. As the stones are being added to add more pressure, Jesus is stacking word upon word to describe what he is going through and, and what he is feeling on the inside. I mean, there was that which was, you could see on the outside of his countenance, but there was something on the inside that where the pressure was even that much more heavy for him. Some agonizing pressure that Luke said that he sweat as it were drops of blood. There's a medical term for that, hematidrosis. Doctors say that it's possible that a person can find themselves under such extreme pressure, under extreme distress and, 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 and pressure that the capillaries around the pores 
become so fragile that they began to seep blood that mixes with their sweat. Jesus is suffering. Hebrews really captures it well in Hebrews, the fifth chapter and verse 12. There he said he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent crying to the Lord, to him who could save him from his death. That's the pressure that Jesus found himself of under. It is midnight in the garden now. The Savior wrestles alone with fears. You say, but wait a second. When Jesus entered into the garden, he took with himself his disciples. In fact, as they entered into the garden and, and he's taken with his disciples, he has 11 with him. Luke, uh, Judas has gone to betray him. He takes eight of them. He says, you stay here. And then it says he goes further into the garden, but he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And he says, stay here and, and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Stay here and pray. And then Luke, the, the 22nd chapter, I think verse 41 says that he goes a stone's throw away. He goes about 30 yards away, and there it says that he fell on his face, and he began to pray. He's alone. But where were the disciples? Well, they're asleep. I thought to myself, how could you be so oblivious? He comes to you, and he's sweating, as it were, drops of blood, and you can't see that? He's told you that he is grieving to the point of death. Did, he, did you not hear that he is sorrowing deep down inside? Can you not see that? We don't know why they were sleeping. Maybe uh, you know, maybe it was just the day. It had been a long day. It's the Passover and the Passover feast and those moments inside that upper room, and now it's midnight. Maybe their eyes are just so heavy and they're just so burdened with what Jesus had told them, and they just couldn't help it. Mark says that when Jesus came to them, it says they didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to, what to say to him. And then he goes away. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because it was Jesus' decision. Peter, James, and John could have supported him, but they couldn't make the decision for him whether he would resolve to do what he had come to do. And so he had to go, go it alone. It was his decision to make. He would have to bear the sins of the world. Understand something about Jesus. Never forget that he was 100% God. He proved it by his signs and his miracles and his wonders. Even Nicodemus in John 3, he knew that. Nicodemus, he says, no man can do this. No one can do this unless they're God. Which is an interesting moment that you think, okay, the guy had to be convinced at that point. But he did incredible things that no man could do. He's 100% God. But never forget, he's 100% man. He was born of a woman. And when he was hungry, he had to eat. And when he was thirsty, he needed water. And when he was tired and exhausted, he needed to be able to sleep. And when he was happy, he laughed. And when he was sad, he cried. He had all the range of the emotions that you and that I have. He had all those emotions that he had to deal with in his life. There you see the humanity of Jesus on full display to see him as he really is and how he is so close to who we, we are in so many incredible ways. And so Jesus is praying to his father like he had every day of his life. But on this night, his prayer is one of deliverance. His prayer is asking God to take this cup away from him, but he is alone. 
Tis midnight, and from all removed, the Savior wrestles long with fears in that disciples whom he loved heed not his master's grief and tears. Then there are the Savior's prayers. And as you think about the, the Savior's prayers, that Jesus offered three petitions. In Mark's account, there he says that Jesus came and he fell on his face and he asked God that this hour would pass from him. And then he says these words, Abba, Father. The word Abba is probably the one of the most uh, one of the most intimate terms that a Jewish child could use to address his father. Abba, the closest thing that I think we can get to it in our English language without being in any kind of disrespect is the word daddy or dad. I raised three daughters. They're all grown now, and, and I can't remember any of them say, calling me father. I can't remember any of them saying to me, father, can I borrow the car tonight? Father, can I go out and do this? Father, can I do that? They always, when they were little girls, they said, daddy, can I have a, a cookie? Daddy, can I do this? As they grew older, they said, dad. And, and even today, as they're adults, they'll call me up and say, dad, I'm having problems with my plumbing. Could you come over and help me, you know, dad, my dad, I don't recall ever calling him father. He was daddy. He was dad. And what that shows is it shows a, a child that is dependent upon their father that who has the strength to make it all happen. And so Jesus, or so Mark says that Jesus said, Abba, father, all things are possible with you. Peter, in his petitions, he offers up three petitions or records three petitions. In one petition, he says that Jesus said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In the second petition, he says, Father, if the cup is, if it is not, if it is not possible, and that I must drink of this cup, then let it be so, you know. And, and then in his third petition, he says the same thing. If it is not possible that I have to drink of this cup. In all three of the petitions, with Mark's, Abba, Father, if all things are possible, remove this cup from me. In all three of the petitions, his, their answer, his answer was always, yet not my will, but your will be done. More than anything in the world, Jesus' desire was to do his Father's will. The one thing he did not want to do is drink of that cup. I thought to myself, you know, the, the cup, what does it signify? What's, what are the ingredients inside the cup that are so terrifying? Over the years, you know, people have debated it and, uh, and have discussed it. What are those things? Someone said, well, as he looked into the cup, figuratively speaking, he, did he see his trials? Did he see the time on the pavement? Did he see his crucifixion? I think he saw that for sure. But I don't think it just was the crucifixion and the horror of the crucifixion or the torture of the crucifixion or even the humiliation. I think it went much deeper than that. And as I thought about it, I think what he was seeing was that he was seeing that the sins of the world would soon be upon him. Remember I said to you that Jesus is fully God and fully man. When he was God in eternity, in his pre-incarnation, he was God. He was holiness in, in every way. He was righteousness in every way. He was purity in every way. And it wasn't until he became a man and he walked among us, among the putridness of our sin, that he experienced it not upon himself, but he knew the soil of sin, and yet the soil of sin never touched him. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says he had been tempted in all things as we have, and yet without any sin. 
And then to think of all the sin being brought down upon him. You know, for us, we don't understand that because I don't know about you, but I hardly can go a day or two without sinning, either in thought or in word or in some kind of action where I just completely blow it. Sometimes it's by commission, sometimes it's not. But, but nevertheless, I do. But Jesus to walk through 33 years of his life and never sin. And then to know that he's going to bear all the sins, not one sin, not Richard's lifetime of sin, not your lifetime, all the lifetime of sins of millions of billions of people would be cast upon him as he hung on the cross. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. It said he took him, Jesus, who knew no sin and made him sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. He bore his on his body our sins on the cross that we having died to sin might live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. Wounds that went beyond the flesh, wounds that went deeper than skin, wounds that went deep down inside his soul. He knew he'd bear all those sins, but I don't think it was anything in comparison to the other thing that he saw in that cup. And what he saw in the cup was two things. He saw the wrath of God. And he saw separation from God. At no time in his being, in eternity, had he ever been separated from God. And yet he knows that sin means separation. He knows what Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says. He knows that it's our transgressions that separate us from God. He knows that it's our sins that cause God to turn his face away from him. He knows that when he bears all the sins of the world, God is going to turn his face from his son for the first time in all eternity. And he knows there is wrath that is coming. He knows God can be wrathful. He knows Isaiah 53. He knows that's about him. He knows the passage. He knows verses 1 and 2. Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's talking about an arm of strength that is going to come down in such force that it's going to crush the sun. So that's going way too far. Well, you haven't looked at Isaiah 53 and verse 5 where it says, He has been pierced through for our iniquities. And by our sins, he has been crushed. The word means to be pulverized. He knows this is all going to happen uh, to him. And at that moment, Jesus on the cross for the first time in all eternity and since then was separated from his father and felt the full wrath of his father. And God turns his face away. No wonder he sweat as it were drops of blood. No wonder he is grieved to the point of death. No wonder he was so distressed. No wonder he is filled with so much sorrow. As he thought about that moment that he would have to endure. But drinking of the cup, Jesus knew that he had become the atoning sacrifice for your sins and for my sins and because of that great love that he has for the Father and that great love that he had for those that he had created, he would willingly die on the cross. He knows it's coming. He knows the physical, the spiritual, the suffering that is there. Tis midnight and for others guilt, the man of sorrows weeps in blood. Yet he that hath in anguish knelt is not forsaken by his God. There's Gethsemane's resolve that I think is such a beautiful part of the Gethsemane moment. Remember, Jesus is 
is struggling with what he is going to do. There is this resolve that is within him. He is willing to do the Father's will. How is he able to, to do that? How is he able to gain the strength to do so? You know, if you were to ask someone, what, how would you see Jesus? How would you describe him? Well, someone would say, well, you know, Jesus was love. And you might think about John, the 15th chapter in verse 13, where it says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That would be a good one. Maybe the word obedience, Philippians 2 and verse 8 says, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. Maybe it's obedience. Maybe it's the two combined. His love for you. His love for me. Uh, his love for mankind. To hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus, they just put nails in your hands. Jesus, they just put nails in your feet. They just spit on you and they just mock you. They just beat you. But there's this great love that was there. And he wanted so much to do his Father's will. So he was obedient and so he was resolved to do that where did he get his strength from well over in in luke chapter 22 and verse 43 there it says that now an angel from heaven came and strengthened him we're not told what the angel said we don't know what the angel did luke just says it, it happened understand this that before the cross jesus had not bore the sins of the world he's still in sweet fellowship with the father there is still this love affair between the two where they love each other so much. He has not bore the sins. He is not forsaken by his father at this point. That's coming, but it hasn't at this point. And so he sends an, an angel. And the angel is able to, to help him. He doesn't take the cup away, but he strengthens him. I think there's where Jesus had his answer to his, his prayer. Father, if it's possible, take this cup. Father, if it is not possible, take this cup. Your will be done. And I think at this point, he knows the answer. He knows where he's going. And so he's resolved. And in that resolve, he resolutely stands up from that moment of prayer and he goes to his disciples. And now that resolute, that that feeling of grief and despair has been replaced now with a calmness that knows what he is going to do. And so with resolve, he goes to the disciples and he says to them, Arise. My eternal moment is here. My betrayer is at hand. And he's arrested. And he's tried and he'll be crucified. Yet he that hath in anguish knelt is not forsaken by his God. Tis midnight from either plains is born the song that angels know. Unheard by mortals are the strains that sweetly soothe the Savior's woes. Jesus has his answer. So I began to think and reflect about Gethsemane and what it means to me, okay? And 
maybe what it means to you. And as I reflected upon that, the Garden of Gethsemane absolutely boggles my mind as a human being. Because I wonder, how could he be willing to die for those people who do not care for him, who do not love him, who hate him, who have spit upon him, who have mocked him, for people today who reject him, who have nothing to do with Jesus? How could he do that? What is it, what is it about him that allows him to do that? And I think that the answer is that he's able to see beyond uh, all of Blau. What did he see? He saw a joy that was set before him. Hebrews, the 12th chapter in verse 2, says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who the, for the joy set before it endured the cross, despising its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did he see? What did he see beyond? What was that joy? Well, the answer is so simple. Just look around the room. Look around the room. And you see the faces of that joy. And when you walk out here and walk up into the auditorium and there's even more people, you'll see the answer. The joy was that he saw you and me saved. He saw a world saved because of his selfless act of sacrifice. He saw that. He saw something else. He saw himself seated at the right hand of the throne of God as the King of kings and Lord of, of lords. He saw his, his resurrection. He saw those things. And so I've said all of that to get us to this moment, to this quick moment, and that is distress moments in our lives. All of us have our Gethsemane moments. So what do you do with a Gethsemane moment? Moments in our lives when, when we're struggling with such deep distress and sorrow. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a child or an aunt or an uncle or a friend or, or someone that was so close to us and there's this deep sorrow that is inside of us. Or maybe we've had to make this huge decision that we didn't want to make, but it was a necessary decision and we make it. How do we make it past that? How does it become that we're able to, to do it? And the answer is the same way Jesus did it. God did not take his cup from him, but God was with him in his moment of need. He took all of his cares and his anxieties, and he cast them before the Father. And he says, whatever your will is, I'll do it. And in that, he found resolve, and he found a resolute way to do it. And that's how we have to do it. You know, 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, Peter says, Cast all your cares and anxieties upon him because he cares for you or Philippians chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. So guard your heart, uh, that passes all comprehension or even being able to understand it will guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. So Hebrews the 13th chapter in verse 5 where God promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are our Savior himself. The last words, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's his promise to us. Maybe he'll send an angel. I don't know. I don't know if you'd know it if it happened. I was teaching this one time on a series that I did on angels, and one of the members came up to me afterwards, and he said, well, yeah, I think you can know if you have interacted with an angel. I said, how would you know? He says, you just ask him. They can't lie. <laughs> so you say, well, Brian, are you an angel? He says, well, yes, I am. He said, get out of here. You're not an angel. <laughs> we wouldn't believe it if they told us they were Finding strength in God's word. That's what we're doing this weekend with all these messages on, on hope. Maybe it's the actions and words of a friend. I close with this illustration of a Gethsemane moment in my life. I'm sure you've had yours. 
I was 26 years old. I had left my job as a non-destructive tester and moved down to Dallas, Texas, and to Cedar Hill, Texas, where I went to school, the Preston Road School of Preaching. In my second year, I turned 26, and a Sunday morning before worship began, I got a phone call from my younger brother, Randy, and he said, Jimmy, that's what the guys called me back then, Jimmy, dad's missing. He's been gone for three days, and we know where he is. I said, okay. I said, please keep me posted. Dad was traveling down from Washington State down to Oklahoma because of a tragedy in our family, so he was driving down there. After services, I got another phone call at the office there, and it was my younger brother again. His countenance has changed. He says, Jimmy, we found Dad. And I said, is he okay? And he said, Dad's dead. He's been in the car for three days. He had a massive heart attack on the side of the road, and the temperature's been over 100 degrees. We're not able to see the body, and but he's dead. I began crying so hard. I wasn't like I am now. I, be, I cried harder then than I ever had in my life and since then. My heart was so broken. The elders saw it. Ministers saw it. The members saw it. I went home to my house. I sat on the couch. I was making preparation to go to my mom who was in Oklahoma. And as I was sitting in there, I was crying so hard. And then the knocks on the door happened and, and the brethren showed up. And they came in and, and they didn't say anything. All it is, they just came in and I had some hugs and there was this knowing look on their face that says, we know your sorrow, we know your pain. And they were just there. God does that. God is there in our most precious moments. All of us have, have our Yosemite moments, but the way you handled Yosemite moments is the way Jesus handled his Yosemite moments. He gave them to God. He claimed to the hope and the trust in life's difficulties. And he was a victim of cause of it, and so can we. May God bless you in your your, your Gethsemane moments. Mm -hmm. May you cling to the hope and the trust in your difficult times, because they will get better. May God bless you. Thank you, Richard. Very powerful, very impactful on on me and I'm sure on you too. Appreciate, appreciate that very much. I have a word of prayer and then uh, we'll be dismissed until 1030 and the next session will begin right in here. Father, we are grateful for what your word tells us about what our Savior went through and why he went for it. And it impacts us in such a deep way when we think about the gravity of that sacrifice and the extent in which it has transformed us and changed us and given us uh, hope and joy and a promise. Father, we love you. We know that you loved us by sending your son. And we thank you for that. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you.